Tell you what I never saw and what none of y'all ever saw in any of those services is after everyone receives the pastor standing up at the altar and meticulously rinsing the plate that held the bread, the patent, right? Believe it. Meticulously, you know, dumping it into the chalice, swirling it around, sipping it, wiping it down while everybody kneels and watches. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, I mean, I remember the first couple times I went, I'm like, why does this guy take so long to do the dishes? Hello and welcome to another outgoing episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. I'm Matt Swaim, Director of Outreach for the Coming Home Network, joined by my colleagues, Kenny Burchard, Director of Development, Ken Hensley, Director of Pastoral Care. It's a very directorial situation here. Kenny was a Pentecostal pastor. Ken Hensley was a Baptist pastor. I was a Christian bookstore employee and Christian musician. <laughs> and so we bring all those perspectives to this last episode we're doing on the Mass and how it compares with our Christian worship experiences and all those other contexts I just mentioned. Visit us at chnetwork.org if you want to find out more about what we are um, as a group of people who come from all kinds of backgrounds who are now Catholic. Uh, then definitely come and check out our online community while you're over there. That's community.chnetwork.org, and you can support our work if you feel so led. That's uh, chnetwork.org slash donate. Gentlemen, are you ready to wrap this series? Good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm still thinking about what it would be like if we did the entire episode in the voice of Aaron Neville. <laughs> don't or, do it. No, don't do it. Or, do. Or, you could, or you could be Barry Gibb. Matt would be Aaron Neville, and I'll be Donovan. <laughs> we just do the whole thing. Oh, I'll just do. Gosh. I'll do my crimson and clover voice the whole time. <laughs> Let's hear it. I'm not going to punish people. Okay, let's go. I'm not going to punish people. Yeah, let's get going. <laughs> All right. You guys are wasting time. Uh, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. Right, I can't remember which one of us derailed. Uh, no, I can't. It's Ken. Ken derailed us. But at any rate, we've been going through the mass for several episodes, and we're now at the very end. And when it comes to the end of the liturgy of the mass, we're going to dig into the pieces of it um, and walk through them. But I have great interest in your experiences since you were both pastors. Uh, one of you was a Pentecostal. One of you was a Baptist. I've heard a lot of ways that people end church services myself from my experience. Uh, but how did church come in, uh, to an end when you were pastoring? And did you see that that was like an important moment of any kind, or it was like a someone should pray us out kind of moment? Or like how... How did that look in your particular congregation? Yeah, <clears throat> a, a really great question. You know, the, the like what what's the theology of leaving church? And um, yeah. probably when I was a younger Christian, I really didn't think about that too much. Um, I happened to have the benefit of being on staff at a church with a pastor who really thought about things in missionary terms. In fact, he put up a sign. Uh, as we were leaving the parking lot, and this is kind of a fad, I think, probably in the 2000s, the 90s and the 2000s, he put up a sign facing the traffic leaving the parking lot that says, uh, "Now, are, you are now entering your mission field. 
so the idea was that we're we're leaving church and we're going out to the mission field, you know, of of the of the world. And I, I really gained a lot from from that way of thinking. Um, I, I didn't necessarily see that as part of the worship experience itself. I just thought, well, we're not we're not at church anymore. Now we're going out into the mission field. So I didn't make a theological connection so much. And then probably one other one or two other things I would share is toward the end of my pastoral experience, you know, my time in pastoral ministry, the the terminology of missional communities became kind of a big idea, you know, at least in the churches I was running around with. And everyone's talking about, you know, how can we be more missionary oriented in the world, even to the point where some churches would not come to church on Sunday. They would have serve days and they would get these t-shirts that say, the church has left the building, you know, and not come to church, but go, you know, paint sidewalks and clean up neighborhoods and things. So there was this attempt to get the church out into the world and to see us as missionaries and all that, but that wasn't so much integrated into the flow of the gathering itself, like the uh, the big idea that we were being shaped and sent as missionaries. So, um, so we would just say, "Hey, see you next Sunday." <laughs> Once again, anyway. Kenny, once again, Kenny, you've said nearly everything that needs to be said. Oh, shoot. Um, you know, I mean, knowing now how the Catholic mass ends, your yeah. your church was far more Catholic, I guess. But no, you're saying that your church was concerned about mission, but it wasn't really integrated yeah. into this service. And yeah, I would say the same right. thing. I would have to say the same thing. Uh, you mentioned your pastor being someone who thought about these kinds of things. Well, the pastor of my church was the kind who didn't think about anything. And that was me. No, I thought about certain things, but <laughs> but uh, but our worship service was focused, and I, this is very normal. I think a Baptist church, evangelical, it was it was focused on singing songs of worship to God, praying to God, and then the centerpiece, of course, a lengthy expository sermon on a passage from Scripture, and then right. everything that flowed after that was basically a response to the sermon. There would be an altar call of right. sorts. And now the reason the reason I say of sorts is that our congregation was not huge. I could look out on a Sunday morning and I knew almost everybody sitting there and we might have five visitors or something or three visitors. And so I wasn't going to focus the the altar call in a serious way on does anyone want to come forward to accept Christ as your personal savior? Because like I said, I knew everyone in the room. They were already Christians and and, and I wasn't going to focus the you know, the spotlight on our, on the few visitors that we had in that way. And so, so after I preached, I tended to make the altar car call kind of, a, I, I would broaden it out to, if anyone wants to come forward to rededicate themselves to the Lord or has a special prayer need, I would kind of do that. But then after that, we just sang a closing hymn and then I offered a final blessing. And typically I would read from Numbers 6 verses 23 through 26 you know, Aaron's blessing on the children of Israel, which reads, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it so people can hear it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, in this way, you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is how I ended our service and then it was just, you know, ba basically goodbye. You know, I, I didn't say that, but it was, it was just over. So there was no theology 
within the worship context, there was no theology of sending um, unless I was preaching on a passage that talked about that. So that was interesting. It was a fascinating question for me to reflect on because I literally never thought of the question. Um, but given the direction we're going to go with the Catholic Mass, it's, it's quite a contrast. Well, I guess I was just better formed than either one of y'all, because I no doubt. there was no question in my mind that when we left church, we were being sent out, right? We were being sent out. And, you know, the closing song might sometimes reflect that. Sometimes it might be tied to a theme that we heard in the sermon. But, um, but yeah, it was, you know, we did stuff similar to, to what both of you did, uh, where there'd often be an invitation after the sermon of some kind. Um, and again, I came from, you know, very much holiness roots. Uh, when it was at house church, it was, you know, that's kind of like whatever, man. You close with the song, you close with the prayer, it's, it's whatever. But in, in most of the churches where it was actually in a church building, there was the closing prayer, and then there was one more song. And at the end of that song, last note strikes, we're done. So I have a question for you because I feel like this is going to play into how we get into this next piece. At what point in that process, if you had closing prayer, song and the last song ends at what point in that process did everybody in your congregation head for the door uh Kenny yeah I mean in my case we would probably I would probably after whatever um sermon slash ministry time we had it could be a variety of things healing salvation rededication etc I would ask our worship team to play a final song of some kind, and then I would say, God bless you all. If you have to leave, we understand. You're welcome to stay and sing with us in worship if you like, but God bless you. We hope it's kind of an MC almost, like an MC moving the crowd along at a concert, you know, or at a public event. It wasn't liturgical, if I can say it that way. I wasn't binding and connecting my dismissal, which is a word we're going to dig into today a little bit more into the theological um, and liturgical uh, things or actions that had taken place in the service. I, I think I acted more often than not as an MC, kind of tying everything up and helping people feel like they could leave. Um, there might have been, guys, a few times over the course of the years that I was a pastor, especially as I was teaching through the book of Acts and so forth, where I might make a bigger deal of praying for people before they left, but it wasn't normative in that sense of this is integral, leaving the church, like actually leaving. And what we say when we leave, it wasn't integral to how I thought about it. Now, I, I but I will say this before I toss to Ken, there are churches that aren't Catholic that are really good at thinking about this consistently. I just really wasn't. <laughs> I was I was hit and miss. <laughs> Ken, what about you? This is one of those points. Uh, I, I've done this a couple of times, but seriously, I'm thinking back and I can't remember <laughs> how it ended. I mean, I know that I stood there and I raised my hand and I said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his yeah. face. I said that, but then when that was done, I can't remember if I walked down the aisle and and went out the door, you know, so that I could stand there and greet people or whether yeah. or, or whether the piano just started playing and people knew that they could just shuffle around and get up. I cannot remember. You know, I have I have three lifelines. Maybe I can call someone from my congregation. You can call somebody from your former congregation <laughs> to tell you. All right. So what I'm about to say is going to be uh, sort of slightly altered by recent events, because I think they shed light on how this wasn't always the case. Um, but typically, 
Um, the pastor, you know, says a closing prayer. Um, they launch in. The music minister stands up and says, "Please, going to rise." And you know, our closing hymn is number such and such and such, or depending on where you are, they throw it up on the screen. Right? You sing it. It's done. The congregation leaves. The pastor leaves. They all leave at the same time. Um, and very rarely do people stay after for prayer. I say there are exceptions to this because, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, I went to Asbury College, and uh, they've been in the news quite a bit lately because they did that method and nobody left, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> and nobody left for like a couple of weeks, uh, you know, 24-7 around the clock. So that was not the hard and fast rule. There was always, a, you know, meant to be kind of an openness that, you know, if you wanted to stay and pray, you do it. But generally speaking, most people, you know, all got up at the very end of the last song. They all stayed till the end of the last song too. Anyway, I just like to throw that out because I want to, you know, try to acknowledge some of the different ways yeah. that it happened in these different congregations um, heading into how we look at the the Catholic process and the theology behind it. So yeah. let's just get into it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Kenny, if you could, um, how do we want to work through these last moments of the Mass? Yeah. I, it's a great question, and I think it's important to put these last moments of the Mass inside of the bigger picture of all that we've covered over the last now almost, what, nine hours, eight or nine hours? Um, and that is that, you know, going all the way back to the beginning, guys, remember how we said, you remember, I used to do this as a pastor, remember what I preached last week? Probably not. But remember the first episode <laughs> where, where we started talking about the Mass and that word Mass, M-A-S-S in English, but the Latin um, uh, sort of roots or origin of, of that word, Misa, M-I-S-S-A. And the idea that over time, the Mass came to be seen as the missionary-sending event of the church's life, which was accomplished in this liturgical, uh, ritual, sacramental place of the gathered congregation. And so we've been working, if you, if you want to say this way, we've been coming up to this point of crescendo for the last eight or nine episodes where... Um, little by little, step by step, week by week, we've been learning how God is shaping us into the kind of people that can be sent out into the world. And this is ultimately, as we discussed very close to the beginning of the series, where we said everything was headed. And I'll talk about more toward the end of the episode, but that really does help sort of capture like we we were called away from what we were doing at home. We were brought into this communion of God's people. We've been shaped and we've been formed and we've been praying and we've been in communion. And now we come to this end where there's a sending moment. And um, we're going to take a, a deeper look at, at that together. But for the sake of review, you know, big ideas in terms of where we've come from, before we dive into that last that last part, Anything you guys want to share, Ken, and then Matt, about where we've come from and how we come to this moment in the liturgy. I'm thinking about your use of the word impress a couple of weeks back, that that we come here to be impressed upon by by the truth. And so they're really, when I look back on the whole series, there are so many big ideas or profound takeaways. The mass as a sacrifice is one that I went into several times in great depth. 
The Eucharist as supernatural food is another theme, and I'm going to come back to that a little bit later in this episode, so I'll leave that. But but here's one that maybe wouldn't be in your minds, but one that came to me in a new way during this this series that we've done, and, and that is this, the fact that the Mass from beginning to end is written down, okay, and it's followed, supposed to be followed, with virtually no improvisation whatsoever, and right. it's not because the mass is dead ritual that uh, the, the, this is the profound thing, not because it's dead ritual, but because the prayers and the actions of the mass are so fully profound in their meaning that you want to follow them. And this has inspired me personally to listen more carefully because it's true that when you go to mass a lot, that you can tend to just kind of zone out when, when the priest is reading the prayers of the mass, you feel like you've heard them a, a lot. And you just yeah. kind of zone out or you just talk to the Lord on your own. But no, this has inspired me to want to listen more carefully. And I came up with kind of an analogy in my mind. I remember my son's a musician and I remember taking him years and years ago to the Disney concert hall in Los Angeles to watch and to listen to the L.A. Philharmonic perform Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, very famous second piano concerto and his first symphony. And now these great works of musical of a musical genius were composed, were written down in the early decades of the 20th century. And to this day, when they're performed and they're being performed by musicians, each of whom is a total virtuoso in their own right. But when they're performed, all of these musicians are striving to follow the score precisely. In fact, you you do not find, you know, the cellists just deciding along the way that they're smarter than Rachmaninoff, you know, and they're, they're more cre creative. And so they're going to fly off the score and just, and do their own thing, you know, like, like a beat poet or something like that. You don't find the violinist doing something like that. You don't find, you know, the horn section, well, there, uh, there's no horns in this, but in a symphony, you don't find the horn section deciding, hey, I'm going to be like Dizzy Gillespie, you know, or Bird, you know, or, or Charlie Bird Parker. And I'm going to go off and do a bebop solo and just improvise and do my own thing. That That's what you don't want. That's what you don't want. What you want is for them to recognize that what Rachmaninoff wrote down is so profoundly beautiful that we want to stick to it and bring it out. And I was just struck in a new way that that's what it is like at the mass. You know, we don't want the priest deciding, you know, along the way that he's more, he's more creative and he's going to do it this way and do it that way. We don't want that. You know, and you've all heard the jokes about clown masses and all that. Although I've never seen right. one. My understanding is a lot of that craziness took place in the seventies and eighties. And I didn't become a Catholic till the late, late nineties. So I've never seen anything like that. But anyway, this, this is one of the big takeaways for me, you guys was just that the mass is the words of the mass and the actions of the mass are profound and and you want to do them right and you want to listen to what's being done because what's being done and what's being said is very beautiful. The one thing that I'll say just kind of to tack onto that and I talked about it a little bit when we were talking about the union of the or the the tomb of the unknown soldier, right? And uh, that ritual being carried out to the T. Uh, but in military training in general, right? Uh, you drill on the same kind of stuff all the time. And if you're a paratrooper and you stop drilling on something, I mean, <laughs> you know, because you're like, ah, this, this ritual doesn't mean anything to me personally at this point, right? I mean, the whole point of it is so that if you get in a situation, you default to your training without having to think about it, right? Like there's this, 
you may not be into every step of this and paying attention every step every time, but you've got some sort of like a muscle memory. And Catholics develop kind of a like a liturgical sacramental muscle memory. And at certain points, pieces of it will jump out to you, right? Uh, I, I was doing this thing, like this exercise a couple years ago where I would just uh, every day I would write down like, this is the line that jumped out to me from mass today. And every week it was a different line, right? Every week it was a different thing. But it doesn't mean that one of these masses was more meaningful than another in the sacramental economy. The other thing um, that I just want to point out before we dive into the rest of this is that uh, just the note that everything we did in those first few episodes was ramping up to the Eucharist, right? Yes. And yes. everything that we're going to do from here on out, and we're going to talk about this more at the end, is coming out from the Eucharist. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. so that to me is just a huge... Um, huge paradigm shift uh, in, in how I used to look at what I was doing when I went to church on a Sunday morning. Yeah, that's, that's good. I, I just love, I love both of your thoughts on this and, and uh, so helpful to, to me, Ken, especially, yeah, that it's, that it's written down uh, that, and, and Matt, that we've been um, ramping up for the Eucharist, but then what, like, and, or now what? <laughs> and let's do that. Let's, let's dive in. Let's take a closer look at this final part of the mass, and then let's discuss the implications of of that in terms of uh, getting clarity about about what the mass is actually for, maybe as compared with some of the other kinds of gatherings that we were we were part of before. And then Ken, as is your uh, way <laughs> on these episodes, so often take us back in time, maybe to get some wisdom from an ancient pastor, an ancient shepherd about how to be Eucharistic people out in the world. Um, so I'm going to dive in, if it's okay with you. First, looking uh, more closely at the Mass, because we're getting ready to be sent out. And as we said already, the word Mass is about being sent, Misa. In fact, it's one of the last things that's said in the Mass. And you can see the whole movement of the Mass beginning from, as we, we said in the early part of the series, what happens when I'm still at home? God begins calling me, calling my wife, calling my son, calling you guys, calling us, ek kaleo, calling us out of what we were doing on our own and into his covenant community, his community of, of the saints, into the communion of his church. So the first thing that happens in the Mass is that we are called away from our things and into God's things. So the Mass is first a calling event. Second, it's a forming event. When we come into the Mass, we begin to be formed uh, into the people of God. It begins with entering the church, which is, which is its own kind of formation, stepping out of the mundane and into sacred space, but then remembering our baptism through the putting of the water onto our bodies in the shape of the cross, and then moving through the entire ritual of the church, which, as we said, is the retelling of the entire biblical story in an hour, <laughs> all the way from creation through the fall to God's calling and shaping of a people to the coming of Messiah to the, to the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus into the heavenly places, and now to the Great Commission, which is what happens at the end of the Mass. And this is all done, this is the Great Commission, we participate in it, we're drawn up into it, as it were, 
through the right of uh, the the concluding right of the church. Uh, you might re- you guys might remember that I uh, said at the beginning the mass is um, a little piece and a big piece, a big piece and a little piece. So we're at that final little piece of the mass, but it's really a big deal. Maybe a small piece, but it's a big deal. And like you said, Matt, we have received Holy Communion. We talked about that in the last episode. Now, here we are then at the end of the Eucharistic rite, following now is the concluding rite. And here's how it flows. We'll just dig into this together. Uh, the, the instruction says that when the distribution of communion is over, the priest or the deacon or the ac- acolyte, those working around the altar, purify those things that were on the altar. There's all kinds of cool Catholic names for those, uh, uh, the chalice and you know all the linens, etc. And those are carried and those are put away. And then the priest, again, we, we're here, we're, get, we're putting a microphone up to the priest's mouth because many of the things that he prays here are prayed quietly. But he says this, the priest prays this, what has passed our lips as food, O Lord, may we possess in purity of heart that what has been given to us in time may be our healing for eternity. Pause right there. Ken. Well, uh, wow. <laughs> yes, some things came to my mind here because in this little prayer where, you know, that the priest prays quietly to to himself, to, I mean, to the Lord, you know, that this food that has passed our lips may be our healing for eternity. This this just takes me immediately back to the most ancient days of the church because it reminded me right away of something that St. Justin Martyr says. I mean, this is something that St. Ignatius, first of all, said very early probably 107 AD, maybe 110 AD, when he refers to the Eucharist as, quote, the medicine of immortality. We've already heard that. We've talked about it. But that's what the priest is saying here, that it may be our healing for eternity. Ignatius calls it the medicine of immortality. It also reminded me of something that St. Justin Martyr said in his first apology. This is written around 150 AD, but listen to it in the light of this, this little prayer that we've just read. For not as common bread or common drink do we receive these, but since Jesus Christ our Savior has been made incarnate by the Word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, he's talking about the incarnation, so too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured or nourished is both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. So both of these very, very early church fathers are saying precisely what the Catholic priest to this day is uh, is, is whispering into God's ear after communion has been served and after he's cleaned the, the, uh, the uh, it's not not the elements, you know, the 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 stuff. I can't think of words sometimes. I'm 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 losing my mind um, in my in my dotage. I'm losing my mind and my ability. But anyway, after he's cleaned these things, he whispers this little prayer to the Lord, and it just takes you right back to the earliest days of the church. And I want to say one more thing because I think that this is what Saint Paul has in mind. I think it's the same idea in First Corinthians chapter ten. And let me preach this for a second because. In this passage, I know, I, I know you men remember the passage. In this passage, Paul is wanting to, re, to warn the Corinthian believers about failing 
to persevere in the obedience of faith. This is a warning passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he uses for his warning, he uses as, as an illustration the Israelites in the wilderness, many of whom failed to persevere and fell dead in the wilderness. And listen to what he says. I want you to know, brethren, he's writing to the believers in Corinth, that our fathers were, un, were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were all baptized, and they all ate the same supernatural food, and all drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things are warnings for us. And I can still remember when, when, when reading this passage, the light kind of came on in my head, and it just became clear to me that what Paul is saying to his audience, the Corinthians, amounts to something like this, because he wants to warn them. It amounts to, listen, you believers in Corinth who are not entirely persevering in obedience, listen to this. You may have been baptized into Christ, just like the Israelites of old were baptized into Moses. You may have your own supernatural food and drink, just like the Israelites in the wilderness were sent the manna from heaven, the water from the rock. But you may have your own supernatural food and drink, which can only be referring to one thing, the Eucharist. And what he's saying is, you may have been baptized into Christ. You may have your own supernatural food and drink, but still watch out. If you do not persevere in faith and in the obedience of faith, you may fall just as they did. And so by implication, Paul is referring here to the Eucharist as supernatural food and drink. And this is what I think, um, there are many other passages, John chapter 6 and others, but this is what Ignatius of Antioch had in mind when he spoke of the medicine of immortality. This is what Justin Martyr had in mind when he says we are nourished by this. And in this beautiful little prayer, this, this same truth is echoed. What has passed our lips is food, O Lord, may we possess in purity of heart that what has been given to us in time may be our healing for eternity. I, I just mm. see here this beautiful unity of the church going back 2,000 years, and I'll stop at that point. Can I throw something in here too? Go, yeah. Of course. So if, if that's what we believe about the Eucharist, that's the only thing that makes sense of what a parishioner is seeing visually at this point in the mass because if i mean we talked about this before when we were going through our you know experiences of how we distributed communion in the various ways uh, and that sort of thing i'll tell you what i never saw and what none of y'all ever saw in any of those services is after everyone receives the pastor standing up at the altar and meticulously rinsing the plate that held the bread the patent right believe it meticulously you know, dumping it into the chalice, swirling it around, sipping it, wiping it down while everybody kneels and watches. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, I mean, I remember the first couple of times I went, I'm like, why does this guy take so long to do the dishes? <laughs> right? Why yeah. do we have to sit here and watch it? Can't they, can't they do this in the back after church? Like, the dishes, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> do the dishes. Right. Yeah. Like, why, why is this taking so long? Why is he folding the napkin just right over the, like all these things? If... If it really is what Justin Martyr and Ignatius of Antioch says, say, say that it is, if it really is what the church tells us it is, then we, it makes absolute perfect sense that the priest is meticulously doing this while we all witness it. 
Yeah. That makes sense of that. It does. One of the things I I see in in our parish that I love so much is when when one of our deacons assists, you know, at the altar and helps to serve at the altar and he helps to, you know, get everything um, cleaned up. He's so carefully, I, I, I just, I just love this. He so carefully looks down at the altar and he'll sometimes, you know, <laughs> lick the tip of his finger and he'll go after those little pieces maybe that were broken off and remain on the altar and he'll, he'll consume every one of them. There's not a drop, not a crumb left because of who that is and, and what it means that Jesus is visiting his people in this Eucharistic celebration. And even this prayer that that, that the presiding priest ends with um, is is getting us ready for what's about to happen because he he's in the prayer he's telling he's saying to the Lord what's happened to us um, that that Jesus has come into our lives and may may that reality have its full impact upon us for our healing for eternity. But that's not where the Mass ends. The Mass doesn't end with the Eucharist. Now these healed people, these reformed people, this body of Christ people, this Eucharistic people, something else needs to happen to them and with them uh, and, and through them. And this is where we come now really to the pinnacle of the conclusion of the Mass. The priest, most of us see this, especially in the ordinary form, the priest will return to his chair. He'll he'll sit down. Sometimes this song will be playing at, at this time or some kind of a chanting or singing. And then there's this moment of silence. It's kind of like, let it all sink in. Let it all have its good work in you for the sacred moment of silence. And then there's this standing up. Everyone stands together. And the priest faces the people and with his hands joined, he says, let us pray. And uh, then he he prays. Now, I'm going to read the prayer that was prayed a couple of weeks ago at our parish on the sixth, sixth Sunday of Ordinary Time. Here's the closing prayer uh, after all of this. It says, having fed upon these heavenly delights, we pray, O Lord, that we may always long for that food by which we truly live through Christ our Lord. This goes back to what Jesus says uh, in the Gospel of John. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you know, you have my life in you. So the priest is praying at the end of this, may your life, Jesus, be in us. That's the closing prayer of, of the sixth Sunday of ordinary time. And we, of course, all say, amen, which is uh, the Christian word for, yeah, that's right, me too. I agree with that. And now we're going to end where we began, because whoever the presiding priest is, is going to say, the Lord be with you. And we're going to say, and with your spirit. And the priest is going to bless us, kind of like what um, Ken talked about, uh, you know, earlier when the Old Testament priest would bless the people. And he'll say, may almighty God bless you. And with his hand extended to us in the shape of the cross, may he bless you, you know, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we all again make the sign of the cross upon our lives. We are now the cruciform people, the Jesus-formed people, the Eucharistic people. And we all reply, 
Amen. There may, may be a longer blessing. But now watch this. At the end of that blessing, if there's no deacon there, then the priest will say it. But, in, but at our Mass, and it's probably true with you guys as well, the deacon will say what comes next. He will face the people and say one of three or four phrases. He may say in Latin, ite misa est, which is, uh, it is sent. <laughs> but in English, he may say, go forth, the Mass has ended, or go and announce the gospel of the Lord, uh, or this is most often said at our parish, uh, go forth in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life, or something as simple as go in peace. And then we all say, thanks be to God. Um, it's at this point now that the, the um, people serving at the altar, the priests, the deacons, and all those serving with him will process out of the church, often the way that they came in. In our case, right out the back uh, of the, the um, worship sanctuary, the worship space, where he first entered. And then we all leave behind him. And I've learned, and I'll say more about this in a minute, that the priest leaves first. He comes in last, but he leaves first. And he, in a sense, he is standing for us going out uh, of the church and into the world. And thus ends the, uh, the Mass. And it is sent. The people of God is sent out into the world. Now we have a lot more we could say, but I'm gonna I'm gonna pause there and toss it to Matt. Yeah. So a couple of things here. So usually on a, on a Sunday, right? If you got the music going, mm -hmm. the song begins, and this is just a this is just like a pro tip for if you're trying to figure out what's <laughs> happening and when. The song begins, and usually somewhere around the second verse, because everybody's standing up there, right? The 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 altar servers, the deacon, mm -hmm. the priest, they're all up there. They start the closing hymn, uh, which you know, um, again, often has to do with the reading somehow, not always, um, but, you know, normally it does. And around the second verse, um, they all go out, right? As Kenny uh, was just mentioning in front of the altar, they all process out uh, with the crucifix as well. Um, now you'll see some people who leave the second that they receive communion, right? They get to, they receive communion, they head for the door. You'll see other people who um, bolt, uh, right behind the priest as soon as they can go, or they bolt right the second that the first note of that closing hymn starts, like right? the second that they get that final blessing, they're gone, right? Mm -hmm. You'll see people who stay till the end mm -hmm. of the last note of the song, as we used to do, right, in my tradition. Um, but you'll also see a whole bunch of people who don't move after the music stops, right? Yes. And and that is, um, that's a real gift, I think. And I would just say, if you have an opportunity uh, to do that, uh, right after you receive communion, or even if you're someone who's not Catholic um, and you just want to process what what has happened, take those moments, right? Take those moments after it all settles down before you just dive back into the world. Like, take those moments. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's the one thing I would just sort of add here at the very end, just as sort of like some housekeeping. Yeah. At our parish, I'm we're I'm spoiled and we're so blessed because our our priests and our deacons encourage us to come to Mass early to pray, to find a place to pray. And they encourage us to stay after Mass and pray as well. And I regularly see both of those things happening. I see people all over the worship space, all over the church, 
praying and kneeling and praying their rosaries or, or you know making their intercessory prayers and petitions. And when mass is over, I see all over the place in our church people staying and praying, and it's it's a wonderful thing. And and then of course, and then going, <laughs> then, then yeah, then leaving. Yeah, and one thing to to add to that, this this also helps make sense of why um you know in a lot of the churches that we went to, it's sort of like everybody goes in and it's like, hey buddy, how you doing? How's it going? You know, like catching up with your friends sometimes. You know, uh, in right. the churches that I went to, right? Um, you go into a Catholic church and like it's silent very often. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, not always, but most of the time it's silent. And you leave and it's still it's it goes back to complete silence in the sanctuary very often. And the talking happens out there, right? Right. No, and this is this is again part of that whole thing. What about um, Matt? When we were talking the other day, you were going to say something about seeker friendly churches. The difference. Do you want to throw that in, or have you forgotten what you had in your mind? I've forgotten at this point. <laughs> Well, well, so, well, I'll remind you in a sec. We'll, yeah. we'll come back to it. Um, um, but, but guys, so I guess my my final thoughts here. I have, a, I have a couple of things. Is I, you know, having become Catholic and having been shaped now and formed by almost four years of participating in the Mass. And at our church, we come in facing the crucifix. But when we leave our church. We go out of the church under this big mural of King Jesus sitting on his throne, ruling over the universe, and we go out of the church under that image. We come in facing the crucifix. We go out under the image of the risen and ascended King Jesus. And all of that is reminding us of what has happened to us as the people of God. I want to share, a, a, you know, finally here, for my part, a quote from this great little book. It's called uh, Simple Explanation of the Mass by Father Eamon Tobin, uh, who, who's a, a Catholic priest from Ireland, but he pastors and shepherds a, a Catholic congregation in Florida. Here's what he says about the concluding rite and what it means. He says, the dismissal, Matt, you gave us that word a few weeks ago, the dismissal, Missa, missal, the mission, that's part of the Mass. The dismissal is reminiscent of Christ's great commission to his apostles. Quote, go forth into the whole world and teach all nations. Having received the gift of life, we are now sent forth to share that life with our brothers and sisters in the world. At the beginning of the Mass, we were enjoined to let us pray. Now we are instructed to let us act. As the people of God touched by the Lord, we are sent forth to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in the world. We are to be the bread of life for others. We are to share the good news of God's love for all with others. We are sent forth to continue the saving work of Jesus in human history. Close quote. And and for my part, what I would, would say to anybody watching this, and I especially want to share this as a, as a convert, you know, to the Catholic faith who just didn't have this robust liturgical and sacramental theology before, that we have to be careful, like you said, Matt, not to rush out after we've, you know, you see people go up, receive communion, and then out the door they go. Well, I'm sorry. I say this with as much gentleness as I can. The dismissal is part of the Mass. You, you need to be commissioned by God, 
you know, by the the um, ministers, by the priests. You need to be commissioned so that you can be caught up into your share of the great commission that you have and not leave before you've been commissioned and sent out properly, uh, unless you have to. I mean, some people have to get out really fast. Uh, they don't get to work on time or whatever. But if you're just rushing out to to beat the parking lot, that's not a proper way of leaving the Mass. You are to be sent out properly and to follow the priest out of the church, just as we follow Jesus out into the world. So for my part, that's what I see and what I value about this final, the shortest little piece of the Mass, but how powerful and how important it is. And it's different, isn't it, Matt, from let's say, the seeker-friendly or, or the way that people often sometimes structure their worship services maybe around non-believers. This is not the same thing. The Mass is not the same thing, is it? No, not no, I mean, at there's all. A, there's a hundred things, hundred things I could say about this. And I've been I've been stewing about like what, what I should say, you know, to kind of try and drive this difference home that, um, that sort of maybe ties into some of the ways we've been talking about the Mass, but also some of the ways we've been talking about um, some other series mm-hmm. here. So it, in my congregations that I grew up in, right, the ones that were more evangelistic and had the altar call, right? Um, even though you are going to an altar, right, you're going to an altar rail. You're kneeling, uh, and if, you know, the idea would be to bring your friend to church. They can hear the gospel, and at the end, they can, you know, come to the altar and give their heart to Christ. Um that would be utterly unthinkable in a Catholic church. Like invite your friend to mass. And then during the course of the homily, they'll be like, yeah, I should become Catholic. And then at the end they can go down and receive communion. Like that's not, that's not how a Catholic mass is set up at all. Right. Um, Communion is for the baptized confirmed in a state of grace, right? Uh, This is the central worship event of the believing community. You can come and hang out with us anytime right? Uh, you can come witness what we're doing in the Mass. I would encourage anybody watching this, come see us at Mass. But there's a certain level at which you can't participate until you've—and you were talking about this, Kenny, too, like the things that you are saying um, that you believe in when you receive communion, the things you're saying amen to, we want to walk with you and form you in that and initiate you into the sacrament of confirmation, right, before we let you into that for reasons that St. Paul talks about, right? Um, so there's— there's that. The other thing is that that doesn't mean that Catholics shouldn't be evangelistic. Just because the Mass isn't evangelistic doesn't mean the Church isn't evangelistic. Because the Church is evangelistic. As a matter of fact, um, we evangelize people so they can become uh, you know, people who are in full communion and then receive Holy Communion at Mass. All right? And those of us who receive Holy Communion are then empowered to go out and evangelize. I mean, the evangelistic mind of the Church... It is from the Eucharist that that power flows. So um, so that's one piece of it. But I also wanted to say something briefly. I wanted to say some Mary stuff here. Because mm-hmm. if you uh, think about what we've been talking about through the course of this whole series, it helps make sense of why Mary is the icon of Christianity, right? And why we talk about her as the model for all Christians. Because what does Mary do at the Annunciation? right? She receives the message of the gospel. She is told that she will be given, essentially, the body of Christ. She says, be it done to me according to your word. Uh, She essentially says, amen, right? Mm 
and then she bears Christ in her body and brings him forth to the world. That's that's kind of the mass. Hmm. Preach, yeah. brother. I, if I had a hanky, I'd wave it right there. You're waving it, yeah, right? And when you're that's, talking- just what happens, that's what happens to the Catholics when they receive communion, right? You go, you hear the good word news, you say amen, you bear amen. it out to the world. When you're talking well, that's, about that's it being it a when you're talking about it being a family meal too, I, I think again about it, there's another passage in, in Justin Martyr. I don't I can't quote it right now, but where he basically says that the Eucharist is for those who it's only for those who believe what we teach to be true and have been baptized and you right. know, it's a family meal. And so I think of early Christians, let's say, meeting in the catacombs to celebrate. That's not an evangelistic event. It's not. Right. You're you're meeting in hiding almost to celebrate your family meal and then you go out to share what you have and what you know and what you've come to believe with the world. And so, yeah, it, it that's a very different thing. And what I've watched in the mega church kind of world too, uh churches that have gone the seeker friendly direction where where their service is designed around the unbeliever. Uh, to be an evangelistic event, it, it's a place to invite people so that they can hear the gospel and become Christians, is that many of the Christians that are there become really bored because over time they're like, I don't want to hear a Billy Graham sermon every single day as, or as though I'm at a Billy Graham crusade. I don't want to hear a basic gospel message every single Sunday. I want to learn more. I want to hear more. Mm-hmm. I want to go deeper. And so they become kind of bored and drift away. Well, the mass is certainly not that, but, but you're you're right in saying that does not mean that that Catholics are not supposed to be evangelistic. It's just that the mass is not an evangelistic event. It's not designed and geared for. Well, like you said, Matt, where they're going to come in, they're going to hear, and then they're going to become Catholic halfway through, and they're going to be baptized quickly and confirmed, and then they're going to receive communion at the end. It's a, it doesn't happen that way. All in an hour. Yeah. Quick this service. is a this is a yeah. family meal. Anyway, yeah, and, that's and all, we and invite that's... you to to go through the process to become part of the family. But the other thing about this, uh, too, Ken, to 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 build on what you're saying, so those seeker sensitive churches, they build that around unbelievers so that they can get the unbelievers interested. Um, they talk about some, you know, life principles. They talk about some gospel principles and some beatitudes and ways to be better husbands and fathers and wives and sons and daughters. And and then if you get interested, we'll steer you to the small group, like. <laughs> You go to a Catholic mass, it's the whole thing. It's like our biggest thing on display. It's like the most hardcore thing about what we are on full display on a Sunday. So seekers Amen. are welcome, but it's not designed for people who are outside. And then we go deeper somewhere else, right? This is the deepest that we go as a community. Amen. Amen. That's all I got. That's why we have the Whoa. donuts and coffee after. After. <laughs> after because we want to do something you know well and it's important before we toss it to to uh uh ken and and uh saint augustine's exhortation back to this is the dismissal and like even with my son he'll say you know can we go can we go dad i'll say we haven't been dismissed yet and i i take that to heart like i being sent, that's what being dismissed means. It means I have formally, liturgically, ritually, sacramentally been sent out of that place following my priest. I follow him out. Um, I don't just do that. 
you know i i wait to be sent uh and then i and then i leave and i remember i'm being sent out to be uh what i have become as it were the body of christ and so with that can i I just toss it to you to take us home, yeah, brother. Well, well okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is not going to be a Billy Graham sermon. This is a St. Augustine sermon. In fact, this is Sermon 272, which he titled On the Nature of the Sacrament of the Eucharist. And in this sermon, which I'm going to just read a section of, and you two are free, by the way, to comment on it when we end or say, say what you want to say. But um, what he does on this is that he he meditates on this idea that the body and blood of Christ is what we see on the altar, but the body of Christ is what we are as well and what we become. And so that when we are sent out into the world, we are sent out as a, as um, other Christ. We're sent out Mm -hmm. as his body into the world. And he kind of meditates on that. It's a very, it's very interesting what he says. So I'm going to read it. It's fascinating and just take it in and see what you think. What you see on God's altar, you've already observed during the night that has now ended. But you've heard nothing about just what it might be or what it might mean or what great thing it might be said to symbolize. For what you see is simply bread and a cup. This is the information your eyes report. But your faith demands far subtler insight. The bread is Christ's body, your faith tells you. The cup is Christ's blood. What is seen is a mere physical likeness, the bread and the wine. What is grasped bears spiritual fruit. Okay, then he goes deeper. So now, if you want to understand the body of Christ, listen to the Apostle Paul speaking to the faithful. You are the body of Christ, member for member, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. If you therefore are Christ's body and members, it is your own mystery that is placed on the Lord's table. It is your own mystery that you are receiving. You are saying amen to what you are. Your response is a personal signature affirming your faith. Be a member of Christ's body then. Be a member of Christ's body then so that your amen may ring True. See, this is where he's kind of dropped down now and he's going into the mystical realms here, but he's saying something very profound. He's saying, think about it. Paul says, you are the body of Christ, member for member and members of one another. You are the body of Christ. So the mystery that we see on the table is the mystery of our life. It's the mystery of what Christ has made us, who we are, and even what our mission is to be bred for the world. And so he says, It is your own mystery that you are receiving from the table of the Lord. You are saying amen to what you are. Okay, then he goes on. But what role does the bread play? We have no theory of our own to propose here. Listen instead to what Paul says about this sacrament. He quotes Paul again. The bread is one, and we, though many, are one body. One bread, he says. What is this one bread? Is it not the one body formed by many? Remember, bread doesn't come from a single grain, but from many. When you receive, when you received exorcism, he's talking about at your baptism, all right? He's referring back to it now. When you received exorcism, you were ground. When you were baptized, you were leavened. When you received mm-hmm. the fire of the Holy Spirit in confirmation, you were baked. <laughs> Be what you see, 
receive what you are. What a what a strange and beautiful and interesting imagery. He says, okay, you are <laughs> you are the bread of Christ. Just like the bread, a loaf of bread is made of many, many grains, we all together, many, many individuals, become the bread of Christ. We become the one body of Christ, the one bread of Christ. And I love what he says here. When you received exorcism, that's if you like, if you will, that's when you were being ground up. When you were baptized, that's when you were being leavened. When you received the fire of the Holy Spirit, that's when you were being baked and you came out of the oven. And now you are the body of Christ, the bread of Christ. Be what you see, he says. Receive what you are. This is what Paul is saying about the bread. So too, what are we to understand about the cup? What we are to understand about the cup is similar and requires little explanation. Remember, friends, how wine is made. Individual grapes hang together in a bunch, but the juice from them all is mingled to become a new brew, a new brew. This is the image chosen by Christ, our Lord, to show how, at his own table, the mystery of our unity and peace is solemnly consecrated. All who fail to keep the bond of peace after entering this mystery receive not a sacrament that benefits them, but an indictment that condemns them. So let us give God our sincere and deepest gratitude. And as far as human weakness will permit, let us turn to the Lord with pure hearts. With all our strength, let us seek God's singular mercy, for then the divine goodness will surely hear our prayers. God's power will drive the evil one from our acts and our thoughts. It will deepen our faith, govern our minds, grant us holy thoughts, and lead us finally to share the divine happiness through God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And when I hear this sermon, you know, I took us back to the early fathers a while ago in this episode, but I'm reminded again of St. Ignatius of Antioch because he was, the, he was the bishop of the city of Antioch, the very city that sent out Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys, the very city that was led by Peter for some time. And he has now been condemned and he's being sent to Rome, where he's going to be torn apart by wild beasts in the arena. And he writes these seven beautiful letters to churches along the way, seven uh, to the seven churches that the book of Revelation is written to, many of the same churches. And in that, you remember what he says? He says, I will, I'm going to Rome. Don't try to stop it. I don't want it to stop. He said, I am the bread, of, I am God's bread or Christ's bread. And when I go into that arena and the animals attack me, I'll be ground up and become food for the world. And this is sort of what what Augustine is getting at here too. I don't know, Kenny, mm-hmm. you, you must have something you want to say about this wonderful sermon. Yeah, it it's it's the whole picture. This line, uh, be what you see, receive what you are. We sometimes sing that in a song, uh, the, a hymn that we sing together at our church. And it all, I never had heard it before I became Catholic. <laughs> Become what you see. It just struck me. You, you, you have received the body of Christ. Be, let that be what you become, and then you go out into the world as the body of Christ to the world around you. And that's really, guys. I mean, if we, if we come in for a landing here, that's what the mass is all about. It's about being called away from our from our own life, our own things being called into God's family, into God's very life, into the life of the Trinity and into the communion of the saints, being formed into the people of God 
um, being formed into the body of Jesus and being sent out, you know, like St. Ignatius, to be broken bread for the whole world. And it's the most beautiful thing I've ever been a part of in my life. And I would exhort anybody watching this, especially Catholics, to let the whole mass, <laughs> if I can say it this were this way, come crashing down upon your your life and and do its good work in you. And don't show up late and don't leave early. Let the whole thing have its good work in your life because it's going to change you, and the world is going to be changed because of you. Uh, if if you will let the mass be what it really is in your life, and that's it from me, guys. The only thing I have to add is, uh, you know, Ken, as you're talking about um, St. Ignatius of Antioch, uh, you know, talking about being ground as, as grain, ground like bread, um, you know, all I can think of is a guy who was also in his world, uh, St. Polycarp. They both had a mutual connection to John the Apostle. And, you know, Polycarp's is the earliest recorded reliable account of a martyrdom outside the New Testament. And he was burned alive, right? And uh, in this, you know, account of the martyrdom, it says, it smelled not like burning flesh, but baking bread. <laughs> right, <laughs> right? right. I remember a, that. Yeah. Uh, and whether it actually did or not, you know, that's the Eucharistic world that those people were living in. There right. It is. That was a truth about Polycarp, right? See, and being a sacramental bread, truth. So the, the, the word that that screams out to me is service. The, to be bread for the world means going out and offering your life, being a, a, a life of service. Um, yeah. I, I think of Mother Teresa there. You know what? I've been oh, teaching no. I've been teaching at this Catholic girls' school long enough. I think I'm going to go out and become bread for the world. So she goes into the alleys and byways of Calcutta and just begins to scoop up people off the street who are dying and care for them. That That's an illustration. That's an example of what it means to be bread for the world. And and notice how powerful that message was. You know, I've often thought it was so strange that Mother Teresa could go to a school like Harvard and she could stand up there and she could say things like, um, don't abort the little child. Let the child live. Bring the child to us. We'll raise the child. And a bunch of hardcore, many secular students would sit out there on the grass and just start to weep. That's a message. I mean, this is such a powerful message. That's what it means to be Amen. bred. That's what it means to be sent out. Mm. So anyway. Well, and again, uh, Mother Teresa, who's, you know, went to Mass every single day of her life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. there there you go. Uh, she took that part, that part seriously. So all that to say, um, if anybody asks you, uh, what's the difference between like a a typical Protestant service in a Catholic mass, you can just say to them, well, do you have about nine or 10 hours? <laughs> I can answer, but it'll take me nine hours. I can hours answer, but it's going to take most of your weekend. So <laughs> the other thing I was going to say, Ken, is that, you know, if I want to, you know, I know you had some, some things to say about Billy Graham and, and his stuff. So I, I'm just going to make you borrow my uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, uh, his crusade choir on vinyl and just you listen to that for a few days and it'll soften you up with some George Beverly Shea little GBS action get you back in the get sung you back like, in the groove there. Sung, sung like ne Neville Chamberlain oh no not Neville Chamberlain no. <laughs> no no oh no Aaron Neville so like Winston Churchill you meant Aaron Neville it well, all comes back around it all comes back around 
Well, thank you so much for uh, being part of this series of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. We got another series in the pipeline and uh, looking forward to sharing that with you pretty soon. In the meantime, uh, check out all the previous episodes of this series and all our previous other series on Mary and the Eucharist and baptism and a whole bunch of other stuff by going to chnetwork.org. You can also join the conversation in our online community. That's community.chnetwork.org. And uh, then, of course, if you want to donate to us so we can get Ken's education up <laughs> so he knows the difference between Aaron Neville and Neville Chamberlain, then uh, by all means, donate to Ken's continuing education at chnetwork.org slash donate. Gentlemen, as always, a pleasure. Wow. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. See you later. <laughs> Neville Chamberlain. <laughs> <laughs> Peace in our time. Peace in our time. Peace in our time. <laughs>